Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. So the passage comes from Luke 12, 35 to 48, and it basically says this. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Um, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put, his, put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master has taken a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on, the, come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving, um, does things deserving punishment will be beaten with, the few, with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. Um, so let's introduce, well, I will introduce Adnan, who will come up and speak. Go Adnan, yay. Uh, thank you. Adnan. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ty, for that gracious introduction. Uh, it was a bit more gracious than Joel this morning, actually. After he finished reading the passage, he was like, well, good luck with that passage. Uh, wonder what he's going to do with that one. Um, let me begin by just taking us back just a few hundred years, if you would allow me to. So uh, imagine 1700s uh, Britain or England. Um, John Wesley, the uh, great evangelist and the founder of the Methodist movement uh, in the UK, he said this when he was preaching once. He said, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, meaning an owner or a possessor of things, but he put you here as a steward. Stewards are managers, and good managers seek to please the one they serve. Now, just to give a bit of context into when Wesley was speaking, this was during the 1700s, one of the most tumultuous times in European history. Revolutions were happening left, right, and center. Violent political and social revolutions from the east to the west, most famously, you might recall, late in the 1700s in the French Revolution. And there's some wonder 
by historians as to why it was that Britain didn't experience the same degree or level of violent political and social revolution as many other European countries did at the time. In com comparatively and relatively, it was actually a lot more peaceful in its transition. And while there might be many reasons to this, historians have debated about this, but one thing that a few have credited uh, it to was uh, the Great Awakening that happened across the 18th century, and particularly uh, it, the Methodist movement that was launched by John Wesley. Now, the Methodists unleashed this army of uh, followers of Jesus who held the conviction that their purpose was to steward the position and the possessions and the power that God had given them in service to others. Now, while you had violent revolutions taking place of people trying to overthrow others in order to possess the political resources and the wealth of the nations, here you had an army of people basically wanting to steward what has been entrusted to them for the good of, and service of others. And these followers lived with a deep conviction that things like the poor needed to be cared for, that children who were abused or unwanted needed to be supported, that injustice or unjust laws and labor conditions needed to be undone, that prisoners needed to be visited, that slavery needed to be eradicated. And it's said that the Methodists made things like compassion more fashionable, that they brought compassion into fashion. They sought to be faithful stewards awaiting their master's return. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm mentioning this, uh, I mentioned this at the start and why we should even care about this kind of history. Well, I think moments like the Great Awakening have really shaped much of what we find to be good in society today. Like Nathan mentioned cultural renewal, how we as a church, one of our core visions is for the cultural renewal of our city, of our nation. This isn't anything new. This is something that Christians have been engaging in since the early first century when they went out and lived their, in the entirety of their lives for Jesus. And the spiritual legacy of Christians in the past has widely shaped the context of faith for our present day today, as well as things like law and education or healthcare and business and other areas that better serve the needs of people and helps us to love them better. But more personally, I think uh, the reason why this is important is because it, it gets us to reflect on a personal level about the areas of life that we've individually been given to steward as well and what kind of legacy it is that we want to hand over to the next generation. Like for those of us who consider this church community and family to be ours, like what is it that you want to hand over to the next generation after you? What kind of church community, what kind of culture do we want others to adopt? Whether that's in our families or in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods, wherever we may be. And I think it gets us to think about maybe the time and place that God has put us in right now. What is it that we want to leave behind for the future? What's the legacy that we want to create? See, the Bible gives us a vision of a, of a future that we've been singing about this evening, where he restores and renews all things in the world, where everything exists in perfect harmony and peace. So the Bible says shalom, complete and utter peace and harmony, a time when he wipes away every fear 
every tear. And there's no more sin, no more, no more shame. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering, no more death, no more war. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to buy into that vision with our whole lives because Jesus himself died to make that vision a reality for us. So if that's a vision that we are heading towards, then what is it? What does it mean for us right now living in the present? So with that in mind, let's dive into our passage today. And I'm going to try and focus on just a key message. Hopefully, this is the key message that rings through this entire thing, although I have a tendency to go on a tangent, so forgive me if I do. But the key message is this. Jesus calls his disciples to steward how we live now in light of his promise to return in the future. And Jesus warns us about only believing his returning, yet living as if he isn't. Okay, so let's start with some immediate context to this passage. Throughout this chapter already in Luke chapter 12, we see a common theme that runs through it. And that theme is that Jesus is often speaking forcibly, sometimes quite heavily, about what is the priority of our lives. What is the focus of our life? And this teaching in this passage today comes right after. He encourages his disciples to, um, to not worry about their physical needs in this life. He wants his disciples to experience freedom from the fear of the future by revealing that we have the best possible inheritance in God as our Father. In fact, just a few verses before this passage, uh, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Like, he's not just giving you a house to inherit. He's giving you a kingdom. He's giving you this whole world. Like, this is your inheritance. Instead of drowning ourselves in worrying about chasing material needs, he focuses our attention in chasing our spiritual needs. Rather than worrying about what, what, oh, what clothes am I going to buy and wear, he actually says, rather be, be focused on dressing yourself for service. Instead of obsessing over what physical foods we can hoard for ourselves, he tells us that by prioritizing God's kingdom, God himself will serve the deepest possible nourishment nourishing food that we will ever need. So Jesus is focused on helping us focus our priority. He's trying to help us shape our priorities in the right way, and he reminds us that all earthly things are always going to be temporary and uncertain, but that his return is absolutely sure and is absolutely certain. And no matter what everyone else tells us or is, or, or is pursuing and telling us to pursue as the ultimate thing, no matter what the world is saying is the most important thing for you to be focusing on right now, like no matter what headline says that is the most important thing for you to invest all your burden and your energy in, no matter what adverts are saying is the, is the biggest and uttermost thing that you need in life right now, Jesus wants his disciples to prioritize the kingdom of God and be prepared for his arrival. So, what does it look like to live prepared? What does it look like to have this priority in mind? Well, he gives us two examples with two parables in this passage that we had read. And uh, we'll unpack this a little bit more. But 
parable one has to do with watchfulness. And parable two has to do with faithfulness, particularly in regards to stewardship. So we'll just dive into these two themes. He begins by saying, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Now he's speaking to people whose customary mode of uh, dressing were these long flowing robes. I know that's not really in fashion anymore. But these would be difficult to move around in unless you sort of hitched it up above the knee with a large belt around your waist, giving your legs freedom in order to move around more rapidly and more freely. And this picture gets used in other areas of the Bible as well as a posture to prepare yourself for action, to prepare yourself for battle, to to prepare yourself for work. What he's saying is that in certain situations, you don't just put your pajamas on, but actually you, you put your belt on and you keep the light on. The point wasn't what time the master or the thief was due to return. Actually, we don't, we're not given uh, an, an estimated time of revi- arrival. We don't know when either are going to come. But what he's saying is that when, when he does come, that he'd find them waiting and prepared and ready. You go on to verse 40. He says, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Now, just to, um, just to, just to clarify, I, d- I don't think Jesus' aim here is to give us some sort of uh, end times countdown or, or, or timer. I think he makes that very clear that no one knows the day or the hour that he's going to come in the future. But what that does mean is that there is no time like the present. There is no time like now. There's no time to just kick back and be complacent. We must be prepared at any moment. He doesn't want us to think that because he is physically absent, we can live just carelessly and selfishly with a false sense of independence. Um, I still vividly remember a time in primary school. I was in a normal lesson. I think we're about halfway through this lesson. And then I had this sudden realization that my teacher was no longer in the classroom. Now, I thought this was the absolute best thing in the entire world. So I start getting out of my chair. I start stretching my legs. I start thinking I can do whatever I want. And I actually uh, start saying to all the other kids in the classroom, guys, guys, miss isn't here. Miss isn't here, guys. We could do what we want. And I was wondering why no one else was getting excited like I was. And then I realized to my horror that she was actually in the room all along. And she was just staring right at me. She didn't have to say a single word. She could just see it right in my face. The thought that I could think so carelessly and behave so irresponsibly. She didn't even have to point it out. There was just this real conviction. You could tell it from my face. I was ready to live without any sense of authority above me. I thought I could get away with things just because the physical presence of my teacher wasn't in the room. Like I could start my own party in a classroom, my very own party gate, thinking that I could get away with it as long as others outside didn't know what was going on inside. And I think the older we get, like that doesn't just go away, it doesn't just vanish. It just gets more sophisticated, right? Like we we just become better at it, whether it's in politics or law or whether it's in education or even healthcare, we can think that we can cut corners. 
we can think that we can uh, take shortcuts for personal gain or for our own pleasure and status. And we can carelessly mismanage things like our work positions or our money in a way that serves just our own indulgences. And we can be tempted to think that we have the cover of darkness, like God is out the room. Like no one can see me. I can indulge in anything I want. But alas, when we think like that, it's only a matter of time when the lamp and the lights get turned on. And Jesus tells his disciples to keep their lamps burning. Keep their lamps burning. We're called to keep our lights on as, as, and live as if we're always ready for God's presence to arrive. Because the issue is, when we start getting comfortable in the cover of darkness, we're in for a big shock. When God shines his light and it exposes everything that we thought was under the cover of darkness. We need to be watchful and not careless with our faith. Like Jesus wants us to have an eye for detail for the way that we steward everything that he's given to us. Like ultimately it's his, it's not ours. And we're waiting for his return. We're waiting for his knock on the door when he comes back. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever uh, we plan to have guests over, there's always usually a sort of like period of 30 minutes where there's absolute panic before any knock on the door comes. I frantically start tidying the house. I start reorganizing the living room, start putting the candles on for a bit of ambience and, uh, and good smells. I start chopping away at the vegetables as, as quickly as I can and start putting the pot on to cook like in expectancy for an arrival. But here's the thing, I know roughly when the guests are going to arrive. Like, I know roughly when I, I will hear the doorbell. You might even message me and say, oh, hey, by the way, I'm 15 minutes away. And in that time, I can, I can essentially do whatever I want until I realize there's an urgency and a need for me to start tidying up and cooking. But the warning Jesus gives doesn't allow for this. Like he doesn't give us an ETA. It's not the case of let me just kick up my feet, do what I want, and worry about his arrival later. He says he's due to come back any moment and knock. In fact, it's his place. He has every right to. And the crazy thing is that he says when we let him in, he actually invites us to sit down, and he prepares the table for us. Like we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit more later, but... I just want to acknowledge that it could be so easy just to focus on our call to be faithful to our master. But actually, what Jesus wants us to recognize is the master's faithfulness to his servants. Like, he's not just arriving at the door, just expecting and demanding, but actually, he, he arrives at the door, and he's, he's saying, he's going to set the table. He's going to prepare the feast. He's actually going to wash his disciples' feet. Like, he's the one that takes the position of service in this. He wants, to know, he wants us to know about his faithfulness to us. It's his faithfulness that should drive and be the, the reason for our motivation to live faithfully for him in the first place. He is the master who we wait for, but he's the one who will serve his servants. So Jesus wants us to be watchful, over how we live our lives with the expectancy of his return. And secondly, 
He calls us to be faithful because he himself is faithful towards us. In verse 41, Peter starts uh, asking if, uh, if this teaching is only for, for the disciples or for everyone. Like he has a bit of a panic moment. Like, God, are you, do you, oh Lord, are you, are, you just, are you pointing out me here or is this for everyone? And instead, in um, Jesus' common fashion, like throughout the gospel, instead of answering Peter's question directly, he actually, um, he draws the attention of everyone to the responsibility that everyone has who claims that he is their master. Anyone who claims to be his servant, anyone who claims to be following him, he stresses that the greater privilege or the greater knowledge, the greater gifting that we have been given to steward the more responsibility we have for that. And you might remember how this was uh, paraphrased by the great Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. Don't know if um, anyone who, who remembers you know, the famous quote, anyone? I, I, don't, I don't think that was Spider-Man, but <laughs> maybe something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. There we go. I wonder where he got that from. So in this second parable, Jesus talks about a master who appoints a steward to rule and manage the affairs of his house. Now, just to be clear, this steward, he doesn't own anything, right? Like, this isn't his house. It isn't, they're not his servants. It's not his property. It's not his possession. He was called to steward it for the master. And it was a task of the steward to take care of, the, of all these things in a wise and gracious and godly manner. There's nothing that you and I own that really belongs to us. Everything is entrusted to, to us as stewards. Like that, that whole generosity liturgy that we pray every single week is a reminder of that, that everything we have belongs to you. My money is his. My house is his. My family is his. My time my very life, my very breath is his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as Psalm 24 tells us. And I think it's so tempting to think, oh, well, my master's delayed. I mean, he's, he's, it's been 2,000 years. Like, what makes you think he's going to come tonight or tomorrow? He's still not here. Why should I even expect him? And this delay can just continue on and on, and so instead of caring for the places and the people that I've been entrusted with, well, what do I start doing? I beat them. I exploit them. I use them selfishly for my own pleasure, for my own glory. I'll eat and drink to my heart's content without any regard for anyone else. I think what Jesus describes here is not just frivolous hedonism, like just people indulging in stuff. What he's describing is the, is the disastrous effects that it has on others, the cruelty that it results in the way we think about others, in the way we speak about others, in the way we behave towards others. And he says that, that the master of that servant will come at a time when he is unaware. And he's not coming just for a conversation. He's not coming to give his appraisal. Jesus takes this so seriously. He's coming to bring 
justice for those who have been oppressed. He's coming to bring justice for those who have been exploited and abused. Like, if, this, if the verses are scary here in terms of what the, the, the weightiness and the heaviness of it, well, maybe, maybe that's revealing something about God's heart for justice and his drive to see righteousness and justice done to those who are most vulnerable, those who are exploited, those who experience oppression. When we see the, the brokenness in our world, across this world, like in whatever context that may be, like as, as much as we sense the injustice and as much as it breaks us, like imagine the heart of God. Like he takes this way more seriously than we do. He is coming for justice. And, and this is where Jesus' words are quite stark and scary because he says that this unwise, exploitative, selfish steward was obviously someone who professed that their faith was in their master. Like, this isn't someone who doesn't believe the master doesn't exist. This isn't someone who's basically said, oh, no, I don't, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe he's real. No, this is someone who says, yeah, I, I, I believe there's a master. I believe there's a Lord. And I even think that they're going to come back but live as if there isn't a Lord or a master. So when this manager gets judged, he doesn't just get labeled like a, a bad steward or even an unbeliever, but Jesus says that their judgment is worse because they were aware of their master's return but, and, and were even given instructions for how to live in light of that, but completely disregarded it. Now, hearing, hearing God's word like, never leaves any of us in a neutral situation. It's never a neutral thing. We have a choice that we have to make off the back of it, right? We either seek to live faithfully towards it. And yes, we will, um, you know, we're, we're all broken. We're all fallen. We'll, we will make mistakes. But our faithfulness is not dependent on just our own efforts and our own strength. Like we, we read that time and time again, that Jesus gives us his spirit to help us but we're seeking to live faithful according to his word and to experience this blessing. Or the other choice we make is that we turn away from it completely and do what's right in our own eyes, live our own way, live selfishly, exploiting others, living for self. And Jesus warns that this will only result in destruction. So the question for us as the fireworks begin, <laughs> how much... Sorry, completely distracted from the weight of the point. But question for us, how much has God given you? How much has he given you? What resources has he given you? What gifts has he given you? What relationships has he given you? Like how are we to steward it in a way that is faithful to him? How are we stewarding our singleness? How are we stewarding our our dating life, how are we stewarding our marriage? Like how are we stewarding all the various areas of our lives, whether it's like um, how we relate to family or friends or colleagues? Uh, in his book, How to Inhabit Time, James K.A. Smith explores what it, what it looks like and what it means for us as followers of Jesus to live faithfully present in the time that we are in. And he says this, if you believe Christ is coming, the key question isn't when, but how. 
The question isn't how long have we got, but rather how should we live now in light of that expectation? How will the future shape your present? How do you live in light of this future? Now, what are the things that I should be worrying about and concerned about right now? And what are the things that I can actually just surrender and let go of and entrust in God's hands? One thing I love about Sundays and taking the Sabbath in particular is that it reinforces the idea that actually, do you know what? I'm not in control of time. I'm not the master of my own destiny. Like, all time belongs to God. My work time, my rest time, my play time, my time of pain, my time of singing and joy, it is all his. As I mentioned, I don't think Jesus is getting us to speculate about the day or the hour of his return. He's getting us to think practically about life right now. How is it that we are occupying our time? Because all time is sacred. Like we, we've, we've been fed this idea that, you know, we've got this secular time and this sacred time. No. In the Bible's view, in God's view, every single moment of your life is sacred to him. Like there is not a moment that is not sacred. Like regardless of where in the timeline of history that we find ourselves, like all of history is his. It belongs to him. And again, Jamie Smith um, explores this more in his book. So if you want to read that, I, you know, it's a great book. Um, but he, he communicates that our ability to follow and experience Jesus and his blessing doesn't depend on whether or not or how, 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 clo how close or how far we are from when he was physically here on earth 2,000 years ago. And it doesn't depend on how close or far we are from his re return to earth. The issue is there were eyewitnesses during the time of Jesus who didn't follow him. But there are millions today who, are, who aren't eyewitnesses but do. And Jesus warns that there are also people right now who know and believe that he is returning and coming back and might even believe that he's coming back in their lifetime but live as if he isn't. So no matter at what point in history we are, whether it's first century Jerusalem or 21st century London, we can know the presence of our master right now. Having Jesus' loving presence with us doesn't depend on whether we got to see him 2,000 years ago or whether we'll see him in five years or 10 years or 50 years or 100 years time. We can always live with a faithful expectation of his return, no matter what generation we are, like whether you're a boomer, whether you're Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, or now it's Gen A, it's gone, gone all the way back in the alphabet. Like God is in the business of reconciling all generations. He's not a respecter of ages. History belongs to him. You belong to him. I belong to him. And so we have this responsibility to steward all our life as his possession, not our own. Now, just before I end, I just wanted to... Um, uh, read out some bits of Revelation chapter 3. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I find it amazing that Jesus is speaking to his church all across the world, all across time. And he uses these words to speak to them. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. 
hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Here I am. Now notice, he says, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. But then he says, here I am. I'm here already. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus wants us to be watchful and faithful because when we are, we're more likely to listen out for his knock on the door and open up. And he assures us that when we open, he doesn't just come in to dine with us, but actually he he prepares a table for us as a feast in his presence. The master who finds his servants in a state of readiness is so pleased that there's a complete role reversal. And I can't help but think of Psalm uh, 23 when David describes God preparing him a table in the presence of his enemies. Like, no matter what dark valleys you've had to go through, what journeys that you've had in life, no matter how, uh, no matter how difficult, tire, tiresome or weary or dark or shameful it might feel, like God has prepared you a table if you open the door to him. He's prepared an undeserved feast. We're treated as his guest of honor. He's not just tolerating anyone. He's not just tolerating us as his disciples. Like, oh, these guys are just disappointing. Like, they're not learning. They're not getting it. No, he's not tolerating. It says that he just fills this table with a feast. He anoints our head with oil. A cup overflows. Like, there is an unendingness to it. He makes us his prized possession. I wonder if the band can come back up. You know, in in passages like this, when we feel like the heaviness and the starkness of Jesus' words, that we can have this wrong perception of his tone and posture, of him sort of like weighing down a difficult weight and burden on his disciples. Whereas actually, Jesus' biggest call is to come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like, Jesus doesn't demand anything from us that he doesn't give us the help for. Like, he promises his Holy Spirit. He promises his presence with us to help us on this journey, to help us on this journey of faithful living with an expectation of his return. So as we, as we pray now, as we worship now, may we just surrender and re-surrender and recommit our hearts and our minds and our devotion to him. So why don't we stand now and I'll pray for us. Yes, Lord, help us to be watchful. Remembering, Lord, that you are watchful over us. 
May you consider us the apple of your eye, your treasured possession. And may we see our lives through this lens. May we be watchful in our week. Watchful with expectation of your presence. Lord, help us be faithful, knowing your faithfulness to us at the cross. That you committed the entirety of your life, even to death, as a faithful offering and sacrifice to bring us forgiveness and freedom and to bring this world back into peace. Yes, Jesus, we, we seek your presence right now. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of your presence in our everyday lives. thank you that you are the best master we could ever serve. A master who loves us, treasures us, serves us, but also a master who does not let injustice go unaddressed. That you are coming to make all things new. That you will restore this world. That you will renew everything, that every tear will be wiped. Wars will cease in the name of Jesus. Oh Lord, we long for that kingdom. We long for that kingdom, Lord. We surrender to you in worship right now. Fill us afresh. Fill us afresh, oh God. We thank you for your resurrection power and life. Amen.